Welcome to Disrupting Disruptions, the podcast of the feminist and accessible publishing, communications, and technologies practices speaker and workshop series. Today's episode features Dr. Kate McKenney speaking about her research on AIDS activist interventions with early internet censorship. The talk is entitled Crisis Infrastructures, AIDS Activism Meets Online Content Regulation. During the 1990s, cultural understandings of HIV were inseparable from attempts to define the place of sexuality online and regulate appropriate internet use. This talk documents how HIV AIDS activists responded to the 1996 Communications Decency Act, the CDA, a sweeping set of internet regulations in the U.S. that threatened to marginalize sexual expression online, including explicit information about HIV transmission. This series seeks to bring together scholars, creators, and people in industry working at the intersections of digital humanities, computer science, feminist studies, disability studies, communication studies, LGBTQ studies, history, and critical race theory. The series will bring forward critical approaches to publishing practices, communication strategies, and techniques for making research dissemination more accessible. Part of the motivation of this series is that while humanities and social science scholars will critique quote-unquote traditional academic publishing and communication strategies as being sexist, classist, racially biased, and inaccessible, the kinds of solutions proffered, such as open access and, allegedly, innovative new technologies, often romanticize and fetishize technological alternatives and do not look at how inequity can be perpetuated or only shifted, especially at the level of algorithms. The series is organized by Dr. Alex Ketchum of the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at McGill University, and all events have taken place in Montreal, Canada, on unceded Ganingahaga territory. This podcast seeks to make our events accessible to a larger audience. Transcripts for every episode are available at our website, disruptingdisruptions.com. These recordings are also available in video format. Today's episode with Dr. Kate McKinney was the 16th event of the series and took place on November 14th, 2019. This talk also served as the keynote address for the Ray Keff Masterclass on Feminism and Technology, Desire, Opportunity, and Resistance, which took place on November 15th and was organized by Dr. Alana Thane and Dr. Alex Ketchum. Dr. Kate McKenney is an assistant professor in the School of Communications at Simon Fraser University. She was previously an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies at California State University, Northridge. She was formerly a Shirk postdoctoral fellow in the Faculty of Information at the University of Toronto and Media at McGill postdoctoral fellow at McGill University, Montreal. She researches how queer and feminist social movements use new digital technologies to create and circulate information. She holds a PhD in communication and culture from York University and has taught in communication studies, media and information studies, and sexuality studies. Her research is interested in how queer and feminist social movements use digital technologies to build alternative information infrastructures. She focuses on how these movements struggle to provide vital access to information using new digital tools within conditions where that access is often precarious. For example, she has published on digitization strategies at queer community archives, lesbian feminist newsletter networks, and community internet infrastructures built by AIDS activists. I am going to talk tonight about um, the ways that AIDS activists in the 1990s responded to the emerging online content regulations in the United States. And um, the work 
I'm going to talk about tonight is most of it is forthcoming in a chapter in this book, uh, an edited collection called Gaze and the Distribution of Crises, and it comes out uh, in April from uh, Duke. And uh, I was thinking on the train here that I'm pretty sure that this research first began uh, when I was in a postdoc here at uh, Media Video. Um, so it's really nice to be back now that it's finished to actually um, show folks who I knew in that time where it's gone. Uh, and so, before I jump into this history I want to tell today, I'm primarily a media historian, I want to kind of set the scene for how we can think about online content moderation in a, in a queer context here. So online content moderation, right, is a key site right now where conversations about how to rehabilitate the internet as a useful, democratic, and not toxic medium are taking place. And we're in a moment where various groups citizens, um, tech companies, state actors and regulators are trying to find ways to mitigate harm caused by problematic speech online. So problematic speech can include hate speech, online violence and harassment, but also often sexually explicit content. And there's a couple um, different ways, right, that uh, governance or moderation of content happens. So there's uh, platform governance, right? Uh, so the kind of rules that individual platforms choose about the kind of speech that they will or will not allow. And that's not just administered at the level of the company, but also through the tacit rules that communities of users come up with about what they will and will not apply. And then there's also the state regulatory level, and there's, of course, entanglements between these two levels. And when we're thinking about this um, in a queer context, right, we have to keep in mind that one person's Content regulation is always going to be censorship to someone else. And that's because, of course, as uh, the great Eve Cedric told us, people are different from each other. <laughs> so in any instance of content regulation, we have to immediately question for whom particular kinds of speech are harmful. Both state regulations and also acts of platform governance regularly and disproportionately harm queer content and queer people when these actors are deemed to be obscene or indecent according to the arbitrary terms set by community standards. So community standards determine your lot, platforms like Instagram or Twitter using community standards to talk about how they moderate content. Um, and this term actually comes out of the kinds of terms that our state regulators use, both in the US context, which I'm going to be talking about today, but also in Canada, which is defined partly according to Community, contemporary community standards. Okay, so here's, here are two contemporary examples of how this takes shape. Two contemporary examples of what I would argue are harmful acts of content moderation against queer communities and users. Um, so on the left, you see in it, these are both Instagram images. The one on the left is from a queer film screening series called Dirty Looks. And um, the caption might be hard to read from the back, but what you learn from the caption is that this is the second time Dirty Looks is posted this archival image. The caption says that they're reposting a version with larger flowers because Instagram censored our last post on account of a little bit of pubic hair. History is not on our side, folks, because hashtag capitalism. Um, and the image that you see on the right is from Eileen Miles' Instagram, a well-known uh, lesbian writer and poet. She's posting an image of Zoe Leonard's uh, prose poem, I Want to Dyke Her President, from 1992, so work that very much came out of what's often called the North American AIDS crisis. This is actually the work um, blown up large on the High Line in New York City in uh, 2018, just after Trump's inauguration. And uh, Instagram was habitually taking down uh, images that people posted of this poem. Uh, 
and so I think Miles writes, do we even have to defend this as art or Zoe's career? What are the words you object to? Dyke, want, president? So these kinds of practices around content moderation, right, they have a history and they um, begin with early attempts to regulate the internet in the 1990s, the focus of my talk today. I'm going to talk about how AIDS activists um, in the 90s won their battle against online censorship in U.S. courts. When we talk about accessible publishing and feminist methods for accessible publishing, which is of course the, the theme of this whole series that Alex is organizing, we need to think about regulatory contexts in which publishing infrastructures develop. We can learn from the ways activists have worked to ensure that these infrastructures are meaningfully sex positive. Uh, this is Kiyoshi Kuromiya, circled in um, magenta on the image there. And Kuromiya uh, was an AIDS activist. This is an image of him in 1996 at a press conference, um, immediately following his um, testimony to a Philadelphia federal district court against a new set of online content regulations called the Communications Decency Act. The Communications Decency Act still exists. In 1996, um, it was passed by the US government. It was the government's first attempt at online content regulation. The act specifically aimed to define appropriate sexual expression online. So within the terms of this act when it was initially um, written into law, any online information about sex was potentially indecent or patently offensive. And that kind of content could run again from hardcore pornography um, all the way to uh, instructions on condom use. And generally when you look at any piece of media regulation, as I mentioned earlier, terms like indecency or offensiveness um, are defined in really vague terms. The Communications Decency Act defined these terms uh, in terms of contemporary community standards. And this kind of vague definitional work is well-meaning, right? What it's meant to do is to keep laws dynamic and current, to leave them open to interpretation by courts, and to be flexible to the ways that um, public values around sexuality change over time. But there are also countless examples of these interpretations harming queer people whose vernaculars around sexual expression might often bump up against contemporary community standards. So this Communications Decency Act didn't outright ban patently offensive or indecent materials from existing on the web, right? It didn't say these things can't exist. What it said was that um, the app was going to criminalize providing minors with access to these materials. So what that meant was a website that was hosting or even just linking to material that was found to be patently offensive or indecent according to these community standards. Uh, that site could be held criminally and also civilly liable if it was shown that a person under 18 had accessed the site. So that could be like teenagers who wanted to watch porn, sure, but also teenagers who were looking up sexual health information. And targeting youth with information about sex, especially during the 1980s and 90s, right, was controversial uh, within uh, what uh, Cindy Patton, his name is uh, the National Pedagogy of the AIDS Crisis. So Patton talks about the National Pedagogy of the AIDS Crisis being about um, stigma, about separating the innocent from not innocent, about defining good versus bad sexuality, and of doing this often by kind of holding growing youth as, as this category of folks who are in peril. 
young people and teenagers were imagined as potential internet users, right? They were simultaneously too young to be looking at images of sex online, but also old enough to be having actual sex offline, right? All the research shows this. So there's a real divide between how this law is thinking about young people and the realities of young people's lives. The American Civil Liberties Union immediately launched a lawsuit against the Communications Decency Act when it was passed into law. And they claimed that the act violated uh, the First Amendment, so free speech rights. And they chose Kurumiya, Kiyoshi Kurumiya to be their lead plaintiff. Okay, so I'm gonna take a step back and talk briefly about why AIDS activists like Kurumiya needed the internet, why they found it so useful. So, those of you familiar with the histories of the North American AIDS crisis will know that during the 1980s and 1990s, good information about HIV was often censored. Uh, it was often inaccurate. There was stigma attached to seeking out information about HIV, like going to the public library from your neighborhood, for example. Uh, public health institutions were failing to provide good, up-to-date information. Information that was available was not sex positive. And the internet was useful to activists like Crimea because it was immediate, it was accessible to some amateurs, and it was collaborative. So online, AIDS activists could quickly circulate information about HIV when access to that information was otherwise really precarious, uneven, and slow. So Kurumiya was an AIDS activist, but also an internet activist. And he was based in Philadelphia. Um, his testimony to the court was, uh, came out of more than 10 years of work he had been doing online. Um, running an organization called Critical Path. And this started before the World Wide Web. It started with work on bulletin board systems and then turned into work uh, with listservs and a website. And what Critical Path did was a range of things. They offered nonprofit internet service provision and web hosting for um, AIDS service and activist organizations. So if you were an activist organization and you wanted a website, Kermit would help you set it up and he'd host it for you for free. Uh, and he did the same thing for individuals living with HIV who wanted dial-up internet access. He'd show them how to use the internet, and he would pay. He would he would pay for it so that as long as they had access to a computer or their organization had access to a computer, they didn't have to pay for dial-up access, which was expensive. They also ran a website, a bulletin board system, a 24-hour telephone hotline, which was just Korea being willing to answer the phone all night in his apartment. Anyone living with HIV called him with a related question. And uh, he also ran a print newsletter, which I published on uh, previously. And so altogether, this kind of infrastructure he was building was aimed at rapid, accessible information about HIV. Okay, so back to the courtroom. And I'm going to try tonight to break Kermia's um, words into the room as much as I can. So I think it's fascinating that one of the most um, significant judicial cases in the history of regulation starts with an AIDS activist explaining the basics of how the internet works to a federal judge. So this is a, this is a federal district court in Philadelphia, a case to see here, and then it went to the Supreme Court about eight months later. And this uh, federal Philadelphia district court judge, Stuart Dalzell, he kicks off these questions to Kermit, and he says, I'm very curious to know how exactly does the technology Work. How do you build up this access to, as you say here, thousands of databases that go through your web page? So the activist's response to Dalzell, as it's recorded in the transcript, it starts with just the word okay. 
and it's punctuated by a full stop. And reading this, I kind of imagine Crimea gathering himself to explain something like very technically complicated to somebody who's very, very different from himself. And he then goes on in a long paragraph where he just explains basic stuff like what a website is, what an internet service provider is. Um, once Kirby is done doing that kind of technical work, he repeats his objection to the Communication Decency Act's assault on sexual expression. He argues that the act would inhibit the work AIDS activists were doing online to circulate, circulate accurate, accessible information about HIV transmission and treatment. Information that, of course, wasn't reliably available elsewhere. And websites about HIV transmission and treatment needed to be able to write about and even depict explicit sex acts, right? If you want to teach young people about condom use or testing options or low-risk sex practices, you might need to actually talk about or depict those kinds of sex practices, right? So it's, it's not complicated. Under this new law, though, activists like Kermia wouldn't be able to safely post this information or link to this information. And the fact that the act also um, prevented folks from linking to other people's content that was sexually explicit to hold them liable for that linking structure, right? That effectively shuts down the network functions of online communication. Precisely what was special to AIDS activists, which was kind of building this network and this community of other folks online trying to create useful health information in conditions where it wasn't otherwise available. The web was, um, by its very nature, indiscriminate or kind of promiscuous in its network structures. And for AIDS activists, this was a good thing. So as Kermia explained it, users seeking online information about HIV could come to Critical Path's website and find a wide range of sources that they could reach through hypertext links. And uh, this is a screenshot of Critical Path's website from 1996. You can see the top navigation is kind of broken down into headings, and within each of those pages, there's um, on some of them hundreds of links to other sites, right? So this is an amalgamator of vetted, useful information during a period when um, search engines did not work the way that they do now. The ACLU used Kermia's testimony to assert that these kinds of linked data infrastructures exceeded existing definitions of liability that the Act drew on. So the Act, the ACLU argued, was grounded in understanding the media as being about one-to-many broadcast models for communication, so drawn out of, for example, television or newspapers. And this didn't apply in a reasonable way to the internet, where users follow links from one site to another, and often when you do that, you don't know that you're leaving one site to go to another site. And Dalzell, the judge, is trying to wrap his head around this kind of network structure um, in, his, in his questioning of Kirby. He asks, you seem to have entered into a number of arrangements, thousands of them, with institutions, including research institutions. Have you all changed anything in the way you communicate information to users since the law passed? <laughs> Kermia replies, no. We're constantly updating our site, but no, we haven't changed anything. I'm not sure how to interpret that law. I do not know what indecent means. I don't know what patently offensive means in terms of providing life-saving and life-promoting information to persons with AIDS or persons at high risk for contracting AIDS, including teenagers. <coughs> and what you see here is that the judge, right, he finds the internet too promiscuous. There's kind of rhetoric about risk and fear of vulnerability in the way he's framing this question. 
For the AIDS activists, though, that's precisely this new medium's point and strength. Moral panics over sexual expression were often articulated um, to HIV during the 1990s and related perceptions of risk. And we see this in this like networks of risky rhetoric at the top here. And the AIDS crisis continues to reverberate in the ways that online infrastructures um, provide access to information about sex or, or fail to do so. Okay, so why does this story matter for how we think about circulating information about sexuality online? So the, the rest of my talk tonight, I'm gonna make two arguments for why it matters. So first I'm gonna argue that during the 1990s, cultural understandings of HIV were inseparable from attempts to regulate appropriate internet use. So I'm gonna say that again in another way. The internet, as we know it today, has been imagined and recalibrated through AIDS. So we need stories like Kuramiya's to understand terms like accessibility through a queer and also a crip lens. And second, Kuramiya's work shows us a different way to think about information infrastructures. So it shows us a different way to think about how systems standards and the regulations that govern our communication practices are felt and worked on from below. How they are felt and worked on by queer people, by people of color, by HIV positive people, by sex workers, by other marginalized users. So we need to understand their knowledges and their practices so that we can respond to <coughs> sex negative regulatory frameworks today. Okay, so I'm gonna start with number one. How is the internet central? How is, how is HIV been central to the internet's development? The ACLU was successful in this lawsuit against the Communications Decency Act. So the patently offensive and indecent parts of the act were struck down as unconstitutional. They're not part of the act anymore. And they were successful because they were able to show the court that information about sex, even if it was obscene to some people, had value to other people. And Kuramiya used critical past model to do this. He systematically dismantled the act's really vague definitions of what indecent and patently offensive meant. He critiqued the idea that tagging and filtering technologies, or even well-meaning people, content moderators, were able to make good judgments about the value of sexually explicit information. So Kermian was out to the court um, as queer, and he warned in his affidavit that um, in order to reach people with information about sex, you needed to speak to them in language that they understood, right? So you needed to use colloquial kind of terminology. You might need to depict information visually, like actually show people how to use a condom um, in order to reach people with low literacy levels or people who are English language learners. And Kermia also told the court about how internet users living with HIV were creating useful, explicit, and community-specific information about how to have and enjoy sex, and how to do so within a broader public health climate that preached abstinence, uh, condom use, and monogamy, right? When these measures were not appealing, palatable, or even doable for many people. He argued that young people especially needed explicit information about sex, and they needed it because they were having explicit sex. And he spoke passionately about this um, to the court, uh, about young people. He said, I can only repeat what I've said. I know the difficulties of living with this disease. I've been infected for something like 15 years and have had full-blown AIDS by the CDC definition since 1993. And yes, 
I would want to protect people who are going to contract HIV. And we know that from current government statistics that two-thirds of all high school students are sexually active. And so yes, we're providing the information for people who are sexually active and are potentially exposing themselves. Maybe because of lack of information or the lack of a source where they can get anonymous information that they need to protect themselves. And within Cindy Patton's national pedagogy, it's specifically youth of color and queer youth who are figured as sexually active. They're the folks who are in need of information about HIV, right? And she argues that this happens rhetorically in order to inscribe the white heterosexual teenager as safe from AIDS. And of course, we know that this is a problem, right, for the way that public health discourse took shape during this period. So Kirby is also speaking against that rhetoric. Technologies that restrict um, young people's access to online spaces through age verification or other forms of identity management threaten to dismantle Caribbean political paths to community health model. And these kinds of uh, regulatory threats are like very present today, right? So for example, in the UK right now, the UK Porn Block is supposed to roll out in the fall and it's been delayed. It's, it is expected to roll out in 2020. And that is gonna provide uh, any website with sexually explicit information to um, do an age verification process. And it's not gonna be like choosing where you were born from a drop-down menu where you just lie. They're gonna collect identification documents, right? So it's through a third party. So it's a tremendous amount of personal information that's going to be collected. Uh, the Children's Internet uh, Protection Act, SIPA, in the US was rolled out a few years after the CDA. And it um, requires any public library or school library that's receiving federal funding to install um, filtering technologies on all of the internet connected computers. So you can't access um, a lot of LGBT information, a lot of sexual health information at a public library or public school in most of the United States. So the idea that sexual health information for youth ought to be explicit in order to be meaningful challenge the idea that systems to sort bad porn from good sexual health challenge that bifurcation of those two things. And Critical Path's model showed uh, that building conservative sexual values into developing internet technologies would diminish HIV prevention for young people. <coughs> Where AIDS activists are hoping to secure a free and open internet and also the proliferation of diverse sexualities online. Currently, it was um, just one of 46 plaintiffs that represented the ACLU's Others included Planned Parenthood and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. But Kuramia was the person who the ACLU chose to represent them in the press and in press conferences. And journalists' accounts of the case highlight how his position was what resonated most with judges. So this is um, coverage that's too small on the screen for you to read, but I'll read it to you. Uh, from the New York Times coverage of the case, the New York Times Cyber Times blog. Uh, you can see from the headline they wrote, AIDS activists' dilemma proved decisive in the Decency Act case. So New York Times is highlighting that Kuramia was a real kind of lynch in this case. In the story, one of the ACLU's lawyers, Christopher Hansen, is quoted saying, I think Kuramia was the perfect symbol of speech that is about sex and has strong social, social value. He symbolized that speech is of value to minors as well as adults. Somehow he came to symbolize the essence of what so it was Kuramia who succeeded at showing the court that AIDS activist work online was too large in scale 
and too dispersed in its network structure to reasonably monitor within the Act's terms. Like, what this Act was asking for Neo to do was vet all of the content of all of the hundreds of websites he linked to from the site, to vet every single message posted to critical past message boards. An activist organization led by one person would collapse under that kind of manual content moderation workload. It's not possible. Um, so as I've already mentioned, the ACLU's case wound its way all the way up to the Supreme Court, who also agreed with the ACLU's argument. Um, and the court decided that the internet presented a unique community-based form that needed protecting. So they're really focusing on the internet here, not as the kind of domain of big tech companies, but as a space available for amateurs. And we can think about how the, you know, that may or may not be relevant to the internet we're left with today. Uh, the Supreme Court's decision was authored by um, Justice Stevens. And there's this really strange part in, in his decision that I love, um, where he kind of makes reference to Kirkland. He writes, he's talking about the niche social worlds that are made possible by the internet. So there are thousands of such niche groups, each serving to foster exchange of information or opinion on a particular topic, running the gamut from, say, the music with Wagner, to Balkan politics, to AIDS prevention, to the Chicago Bulls. This is a really weird, like, sandwiching of um, AIDS, HIV information in between um, German opera and the 90s utopian sports dynasty, right? Like, this, this is a strange moment. But this moment kind of, like, particularly articulates the ways that HIV mattered in this case. It became a limit case for why online infrastructures needed to remain open to sex. And needed to remain open to sex is just another topic of value and interest to lots of people, uh, the way that the Bulls were to basketball players. And this is, Crimea's story is not like the only instance of the use of HIV to protest the communications of ZZF. Um, this is another protest I've worked on more recently, organized by a group called Intraactivism. And basically what they did was they created an online form that auto-generated an email so I could go to their website and I could fill out this form and it would send an email from me to Speaker of the House Newt Gingrich. And I could choose from the drop-down menu at the bottom from a series of technically indecent attachments that I wanted to append to my email. So one of those attachments was condom use instructions quote, for AIDS prevention. And the other two, in case of periods, are partial abortion clinics in the United States. And then this part's really great. Excerpts from Gingrich's own novel. So <laughs> Gingrich wrote like kind of sexy mystery novels. <laughs> so you could send him an attachment to write and technically violate the terms of this act. And they're trying to kind of show the ways that this act in itself was absurd in the way that it was written. Okay, so the second argument I want to make here. Is that AIDS internet activism models a different way that we can think about infrastructure. And when we're talking about a term like infrastructure, we're talking about the way that systems are made up of standards, people, technologies, practices, and the entanglements between them, right? We don't often think about infrastructures except when they break, like when the metro car is <laughs> We can think about the consumer internet in the 1990s as an emerging information infrastructure that was up for debate, right? It was in a kind of plasticky stage. Regulations like the Communications Decency Act would set standards of practice and they would determine how this infrastructure would develop moving forward, how it, how it would support certain kinds of communication or not. And 
This act is introduced by the Clinton War government during the mid-1990s, during a period where um, people are often throwing around this term infrastructure crisis, infrastructure crisis. So for Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore, the internet was, of course, an information superhighway. And they were really invested in promoting efficient and globalized economic development as the ideal outcome for internet use. And Nancy Fraser has done some good analysis of Clinton-Gore infrastructure rhetoric during this period. She argues that they were really invested in uh, like fiber optic cables as the right kind of investment in infrastructure. Uh, and they completely abandoned more traditional forms of infrastructure like healthcare and public daycare, right? And uh, disability benefits. For the Clinton-Gore administration, the Communications Decency Act um, was a way to demonstrate how they thought government should approach regulation more broadly, right? So they wanted to regulate content online in a minimal way to ensure that it was decent enough to not put children in peril. But they wanted to leave the formal development of the internet entirely up to industry, entirely up to the private sector, so kind of hands-off approach. And children factored in both of the ways that they, both of, both of these approaches. So children factored in the ways that they argued for minimal content regulation and the ways that they argued for a hands-off approach to the formal development of the internet. So on the left, you see the ways that children would be the beneficiaries of the like kind of rapid development of internet infrastructure. This is Clinton and Gore streaming um, Ethernet cable in a public school in California in 1996. Um, and they, they thought that they could solve a public education, massive public education crisis by just putting like more computers in libraries and the internet instead of like paying teachers more, for example, or making class sizes more. Um, Children would also benefit from these minimal content regulations, right? They, in all of their speeches about this period and about infrastructure, they talk about how children needed to be protected from the threats of online infrastructure. And these children are much more innocent than the kind of teenagers and need of sexual health information that I've been talking about earlier in the talk, right? These are kids who are going to go to their school library and dial up or go to the, watch the first cyber cast of the um, White House Easter egg roll, which happened in the 1980s. Critical Path directly addressed and critiqued this infrastructure model. And they addressed and critiqued it by putting forward their own model that they called community-based infrastructure for AIDS information dissemination on the internet. Critical Path's work on infrastructure is an opening to thinking about how precarious users work on infrastructures from below, how they perform socio-technical labor that matters or ought to matter to our histories of computer networks. Critical Path's model offered alternatives to really expensive telecom-controlled internet access. And it offered this while the basic terms of internet service provision were being regulated and contested. Critical Path's model foregrounded ways that AIDS activists had resiliency and resourcefulness with media technologies. And it brought their resiliency and resourcefulness to bear on computer network models. And the organization saw internet access as a basic communications need for people living with HIV. So what you see here is um, critical pass network model from a grant application that they wrote in 1998. It's a bit hard to see the image on the screen, but 
but he met Fuller in the uh, late 1970s. He was his research assistant for many years. Buckminster Fuller was like a technotopian philosopher. He designed the Geodesic Dome and put up the, the Montreal uh, that he designed on the left. That's called Biosphere now, right? Yeah. Um, and so he and Kermia uh, uh, co published this book together, Critical Path, in 1981. Fuller died in 1983, so this is his last book. And Kermia named his organization for Critical Path. Critical path thinking is a way of approaching a problem through the complexity of the way that multiple systems are entangled with each other. Um, so, here he is thinking through polar systems theories. He's bringing this anti-carceral consciousness to how he's thinking about the infrastructure. And what he starts to do is use the internet to do activism across prison walls. So Kermia's understanding social problems and their solutions as being intertwined within systems and networks. And his anti-carceral internet activism was imagining the prison um, not just as a space of confinement, but also as one walled off from internet access. So that's an image from Critical Pass newsletter on the left. And in every month the issue of this newsletter, Kermia would publish writing by people who are incarcerated in living with HIV. So this meant um, talking to folks on the phone and transcribing their writing or having them send it in the mail and then republishing it in the newsletter. Because he thought it was really important that folks living with HIV, especially often more privileged people who are the folks with internet access, are understanding HIV as a fundamentally carceral issue. Uh, on the right, this is a screenshot from a blog that Kermian Critical Path published. It's a blog by Gregory Smith. Gregory Smith was a queer African-American man who was incarcerated in New Jersey on a really simple burglary charge for a short sentence. And then he was accused or found guilty of fighting a prison guard and sentenced to a life sentence for attempted murder. This is thought to perhaps be the first case of HIV uh, criminalization in the United States. So Karamia um, helped Smith publish this blog, right? Like this is the only blog by an incarcerated person living with HIV where we can get Smith's thoughts about HIV out into the world. So this is kind of back and forth across prison walls. For Kermia, HIV is fundamentally carceral, and the internet is a technology that we're doing with prison abolition. Kermia's commitments to anti-racism and prison abolition shaped this community infrastructure model. And it came out of this entwinement in multiple social justice worlds, right? his entwinement in anti-racist work, in queer work, in disability activism. All of these entanglements manifested this really special capaciousness for thinking across communities of struggle, for drawing connections, and for imagining otherwise, right? Which is, of course, characteristic of queer, of color theory and activism. So in other words, Kermia could manifest his particular vision of the internet because he was able to imagine, through AIDS, other ways of being in collaborative relations difference with people, the systems, and the problems. It was the infrastructure concept that allowed Critical Path to understand and address AIDS as being about issues like the unequal distribution of vulnerability, right? Amongst people of color, trans and queer people, um, people who are poor, incarcerated, people who use drugs, people who use sex work. Kermia's testimony placed these users and their needs at the center of how content restrictions ought to be imagined. And he showed the court that people 
experience vulnerabilities to content regulations differently, right? Those kinds of uh, practices of censorship matter differently to different kinds of people. So to conclude, Kermia and the CDA, uh, the story I think helps us understand and respond to online content moderation um, in our present, right? It's a reminder of some of the things we need to keep in mind when we want to build more culturally sensitive moderation practices. So we need to consult and learn from sexual minorities about the kinds of queer vernaculars and life worlds that online infrastructures facilitate. Community standards are negotiated in practice, and they're negotiated by competing communities of actors who need to communicate online for different reasons, right? We come to the scene from different places, from different histories, and with different needs. And increasingly, content moderation is, of course, carried out by artificial intelligence, by algorithms designed and built on data sets that are chosen because they're as normal as possible, because they deviate the least. Choices about limiting sexual expression online reflect broader values about sexual propriety that individual platforms enforce. And these platforms have been allowed and encouraged by state regulators and certain publics to make these kinds of decisions. Um, and I wonder what Crimea would do, right, about decisions like Tumblr's adult content ban uh, at the end of 2008. There's a great article um, that came out last week uh, by Oliver, uh, Oliver Hanson and Cassie Sedare, and there might be a couple other authors on it called Tumblr is a Trans Technology. It talks about kind of this, this move on Tumblr's part and how it has affected trans communities specifically. AIDS activists successfully fought this conservative network term once, and I think we need Kermia or someone like him uh, right now, or perhaps just his example, to understand how he built and then also fought for the kinds of network structures that people needed in the 1990s um, and continue to need now. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. Transcripts for every episode are available at our website, disruptingdisruptions.com. This episode is also available in video format with captions on the series' YouTube channel, with videos also embedded at disruptingdisruptions.com. The Feminist and Accessible Publishing, Communications, and Technologies Practices Speaker and Workshop Series was founded and organized by Dr. Alex Ketchum of McGill University. This series was made possible thanks to two connection grants from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies of McGill University, as well as McGill's Department of History and Classical Studies, Media at McGill, the William Dawson Fund, the Moving Image Research Laboratory, the Sustainability Projects Fund, the Dean of Arts Development Fund of McGill, the McGill Writing Center, and Digital Initiatives of the McGill University Library. Further support comes from Concordia University's Milieu Institute for Art, Culture, and Technology, the Institute for Indigenous Futures, Machine Agencies, the Algorithmic Media Observatory, the Intersectionality Research Hub, the Black Feminist Futures Working Group, and Cinema Politica. From the Université de Montréal, we received funding from the Research Institute Mila. Additional support comes from Riqueth, Réseau, Québécois, and Études Féministes, the Mutech IMG Festival, 
Elman AI, and Negrillon, Montreal's feminist bookstore. Thank you to the series research assistants, Ty, Judish, and Astrid Moore for their assistance in producing the podcast. Please subscribe for future episodes.